There's no age limit on evil. In every community around the world, there's a small percentage of kids that might be playing with toys right now, but tomorrow they may be a killer. The scary part is you just never know, and it's not always the ones you think will act out on impulse or out of anger. And in most cases, their parents didn't realize what was going on until it was too late. Today, we want to tell you about four killer kids, and stick around to the end so we can tell you what some experts think might be behind these cold-blooded murders and give you a few of the warning signs to look out for. If you've got less than an hour, this is the show for you. Amy and I are bringing you twice the crime in half the time every week. Today, we're talking about the killers of two-year-old James Bulger, 10-year-old John Venables, and Robert Thompson. We're also going to recap the developing story out of Florida about the 14-year-old accused of killing Tristan Bailey, his 13-year-old schoolmate. But our first story is all about 13-year-old psychopath, Paris Lee Bennett. Don't go anywhere. We're jumping into that horrific story right after this quick thank you to our sponsor. Charity Lee's nightmare started in Abilene, Texas on February 5th, 2007. She was working nights as a waitress at Buffalo Wild Wings, so she left her 13-year-old son, Paris, and her four-year-old daughter, Ella, with a babysitter. She didn't think a thing about it, but around 12.30 a.m., the police showed up with some shocking news. Her daughter was dead, and her son was the killer. Here's what happened. On the night of the murder, Paris, he has a genius IQ level of 141, convinced his babysitter to go home around 10 p.m. He was looking at graphic, violent porn online for hours that night, even searching for snuff films. He pored over the images like tutorials, collecting information he would later reenact on his four-year-old sister, Ella. In an interview with Inside Edition, Charity revealed what her son did to her daughter when the sitter left them alone. You know, Ella had been stabbed 17 times and beaten and choked. And basically, my daughter was tortured. Why he did what he did will send chills up your spine. To the police, he said he wanted his mother all to himself. But to his mother, he said he wanted to punish her for a recent drug relapse. He was planning on killing her too, but then he realized that would only hurt her for a few minutes. But living without her daughter would cause her a lifetime of pain. After Ella took her last breath, he called a friend from school and talked for six minutes before he hung up and called 911. Take a listen to that call from Inside Edition. You think you killed somebody? No, I know I did. I feel so messed up. Is she bleeding right now? No. Is she bleeding anywhere? Yes, she's bleeding all over the bed. Because I stabbed her. Where'd you stab her? Lots of places. Go ahead, count. One, two, three, four. Horrifying, right? But it's actually worse than you think. Paris admitted later that he was only pretending to give Ella CPR. In actuality, he wasn't even in the same room with her. He knew she was already dead. He described the experience to detectives, saying it felt like stabbing a mattress or a marshmallow. God. And when asked how it made him feel, he said it excited him. And the more violent he was, the more it turned him on, ending in death for her and climax for him. Go ahead and wash your ears out now if you need to. 
Just days after killing his sister, he attacked his mother in the detention center. In her memoir, she writes, He slammed the table into me, pinning me against the concrete wall behind me. He cut off my air. I was in shock, paralyzed. I thought I was going to die there. Then he pulled the table back. I caught my breath, and he slammed it into me again. Who is this monster? Well, in his bio on writeaprisoner.com, he gives a little insight into himself. This is an excerpt from his profile on that site, and I quote, I am a man who prefers to befriend women, a prisoner with no tattoos, a metalhead who only wears white, and a pessimist who makes pleasant company. I spent my childhood devouring books and roaming the woods. The sorting hat didn't dither before tossing me into Slytherin. Friends endure my love of cats, sarcasm, and fearsome fiction. Prison has robbed me of the ability to bite my tongue or fear a stranger's disdain. The Family I Had, which first aired on Investigation Discovery, tells a part of my story. You'll have to write me to learn the rest. As for his mother, she gave birth to another baby boy in 2012 and named the child Phoenix. She's still in contact with her firstborn son and even allows him to talk to his new brother. She knows that if he gets out, he may come for her and Phoenix, but she says she's forgiven him and hopes that he'll be able to learn from her example of love and forgiveness. Not likely. Experts say that's impossible. Paris cannot feel emotions like love or fear like you or I can. He's indifferent to the consequences of his actions, and he cannot be cured. He said that he wanted to commit murder since he was eight. And here's something else that will make you lock your doors at night. He's eligible for parole in 2027. Next up on our list of killer kids are two of the youngest convicted murderers in modern British history. But first, we need to give a quick thank you to our sponsor. John Venables and Robert Thompson skipped school on Friday, February 12, 1993. They were only 10 years old, but playing hooky was already a habit with them. But that day, they decided to do something a little different instead. They wanted to find a child to kill. And what better place to find a kid than at a mall? So they went to the New Strand Shopping Center in Boodle, which is a town about 15 minutes outside of Liverpool, England. They had this idea to push a little kid onto a busy road in front of a car. The boys went from store to shore, shoplifting anything that struck their fancy. Candy, toys, batteries, even a can of blue paint. They were even seen throwing some of the stuff down the escalator, just because. And then they spotted two-year-old James Bulger. It was about 3.40 in the afternoon, and James was standing with his mother in a butcher shop. His mother looked away for only a minute, but it was enough time for John and Robert to lure the toddler away. The three of them can be seen on CCTV calmly holding the little boy's hand, walking out of the busy mall. More than 30 people came forward later to say they saw them that day. One man saw the boys at the Leeds and Liverpool Canal, a quarter of a mile away. James was crying, and the boys were joking about pushing him in. A couple of people asked them what was going on, but the boys claimed they were brothers. No one doubted them. They certainly wouldn't have thought they were looking at a victim and his abductors. The older boys decided against the canal. They had something more diabolical in mind. They walked James two and a half miles to an abandoned railway station at Walton and Anfield, close to the Anfield Cemetery in Liverpool. 
Once they were alone, they tortured him. First, they stripped off his clothes. Then they stuffed the stolen batteries in his mouth and threw paint, bricks, and rocks at him until he was knocked out. Then they dropped a 22-pound iron bar on his head. His skull shattered in 10 places. When he was dead, they tried to cover it up by dragging his body onto the tracks in hopes that a passing train would destroy any evidence of the torture they'd inflicted on him, and they almost got away with it. But police released that CCTV footage of the two of them leading James out of the shopping center, and one woman happened to recognize John Venables. When the boys were picked up, even more evidence was found connecting them to the murder. Both boys had blue paint on their clothes and James' blood on their shoes. They matched their shoe prints to bruising found on James's face since both the boys were kicking him, and they found the same blue paint embedded in the toe of John's shoe, which proved just how hard he must have been kicking the little boy. His mutilated body was found two days later by yet another kid, a 13-year-old named Terrence Riley. This story is like a real-life Lord of the Flies. He grew up to be a drug dealer. According to him, that was as a result of the PTSD he suffered after finding James's body. In 2009, he got 12 years behind bars for his part in a multi-million dollar drug scheme. But back in 1993, the public was shocked at how young the two killers were. In fact, they were the youngest people to be convicted of murder in 20th century England. The boys were questioned separately for more than 20 hours, but both of them claimed it was the other's idea to do it. At the time, the overall impression was that Robert was the ringleader because he had an air of maturity and hardness about him, while John was acting more like you would expect a small boy in serious trouble to act, crying, you know, that kind of thing. They were both charged with murder on February 20th, 1993, and convicted on November 24th that same year. And as gruesome and tragic as the murder was, what happened afterwards is also a travesty, starting with their sentence. They only got eight years. Eight years. And if they'd been a few months younger, they might not have done any time at all. At least at that time, offenders under the age of 10 wouldn't have to do any time. But since they were 11 when they went to trial and the crime they committed was so monstrous, the courts gave them time and released their names to the public which was almost unheard of back then. But from a justice perspective, it gets worse. They were sent to group homes for boys, and according to one of the other kids who was serving time with John Venables, he was living the cushy life. He had his own Game Boy, great food, playtime, and tutoring. He was doing so well, he ended up spending all eight years at the same fantastic place, even though it was only meant to be a short-time stay. Turned out later, there's probably another reason he was there for eight years. He was having sex with one of the caretakers. She ended up getting fired. But that same boy who knew him then told the Daily Mirror that John was hated by all the other kids because not only did he seem to get extra special privileges, but he was also blatantly not sorry for what he'd done to James. He actually laughed about it. But in June of 2001, when they turned 18, a parole board decided both John and Robert were rehabilitated and no longer danger to society. So they were released. And get this, the two of them were granted lifelong anonymity, which basically means the courts gave them a new identity because they were so notorious, they wouldn't be able to live their lives without fearing for their safety. But I got to tell you, 
So far, this story has me rooting for the vigilantes. But the courts say the killer should be protected at the expense of the taxpayer, so okay. This anonymity order is so strict that, say, you came across one of them and happened to snap a picture and post it on your social media, like at least a few people did, then you would be fined and possibly slapped behind bars, which is why the only public picture of him is from his childhood. So that's just unbelievable. But it gets worse. Let's just say John didn't really appreciate how good he had it. He started drinking and using drugs and telling people that he was the notorious killer. And instead of saying, well, I guess if you want to out yourself, that's your choice, John, but we've done more than enough to protect you. No, the government gave him new identities all over again. Thank you, taxpayers. But he kept on. In September 2008, he was arrested after a drunken fight, but he got off with a warning. A few months later, he got picked up for cocaine possession. When his probation officer stopped by to, get this, have a conversation about his safety, he was trying to destroy his computer hard drive. Well, that was suspicious enough for the officer to have it examined, which is when they found violent child porn images. That was enough to get him sent back to prison, but only for a short time. He was paroled again in 2013, and yeah, the courts gave him yet another new identity, his fourth. His victim's father tried to fight it, saying he only got a new identity on the condition that he wouldn't re-offend, which seems more than reasonable. But the courts disagreed, and he lost that battle. But they were more than wrong when they said he was all rehabilitated. A year or so later, they found thousands more violent pornographic images of children on his computer, and he was sentenced to three years in prison in 2018. It's been reported that he's coming up for parole in October 2021, but I, for one, hope he never gets out. At least Robert Thompson seems to be keeping his head down and making the most of his new identity. According to The Independent, he is believed to be in a long-term relationship with a man who knows his real identity. And with that, Let's go back across the pond to St. John's County in Northeast Florida, where an accused 14-year-old killer was just arrested for the premeditated murder of his 13-year-old classmate, Tristan Bailey. But before we jump into that developing story, we need to say a quick thank you to our sponsor, but don't go anywhere. Tristan Bailey was a popular 13-year-old cheerleader in 7th grade at Patriot Oaks Academy in St. John's County, about 30 minutes outside of Jacksonville, Florida. Her accused killer, 14-year-old Aiden Fucci, was a grade above her in school and lived in the same upper-middle-class community she did. The school they went to has about 1,500 students enrolled from kindergarten all the way up to 8th grade, but that's about the extent of what Tristan and Aiden had in common. As the youngest of five kids, Tristan loved making her presence known, and she certainly shone bright. She recently won a cheer competition with the Infinity All-Stars. Aiden had a darker soul. Days before her murder, he allegedly told friends he planned to kill someone by taking them into the woods and stabbing them. On Mother's Day 2021, a neighbor stumbled across Tristan's body. She'd been stabbed 114 times. She was reported missing earlier that same morning. While search parties were combing the streets for her, Aiden posted a horrifying image to his Snapchat, flashing a peace sign in the back of a police car with the caption, Hey guys, has anyone seen Tristan lately? 
At the time he took that, her body hadn't been found, and he was being questioned as a witness, which is why he still had access to his phone. Here's what we know about the hours before her death, thanks to local news coverage. Just before midnight on Saturday, May 8th, Tristan walked over to a friend's house. At 1.15 a.m. on May 9th, Mother's Day, she can be seen on a surveillance camera at the Durban Amenity Center near her house. According to police, she was last seen wearing a white cheerleading skirt and a dark-colored shirt. But since she was found wearing dark pants and a shirt, she must have changed her clothes at some point. 30 minutes later, another security video caught two teens walking toward the woods in the early morning hours. They're believed to have been Tristan and Aiden. One of them is dressed in black clothes matching those Tristan was found in, and the other is wearing a light-colored hoodie and shorts. In the 90 minutes between 1.45 and 3.27 a.m. on May 9th, police say Tristan fought for her life. Of the 114 stab wounds she sustained, at least 49 of them were defensive wounds on her hands, arms, and head. She fought like hell. At 3.27 a.m., the person in the hoodie was seen walking away carrying a pair of shoes. Investigators say Aiden has changed his story multiple times, but they believe Tristan and Aiden left a mutual friend's house together before they got into an argument. Then he forcefully pushed her to the ground where she hit her head, according to the police report quoted by First Coast News. Now, how that led to her death, we don't yet know. But the murder weapon, a buck knife, was found in the lake near her body. There was no doubt it was the weapon that killed her because the tip of it had been broken off. Medical examiners found the missing piece in her skull. The morning after she was found near the woods, Aiden was arrested. A search of his house turned up bloody clothing in his bedroom and Tristan's DNA on his shoes. Right now, the DA isn't saying if she was sexually assaulted as well. She was wearing all her clothes when she was found, but they did say his DNA was found on her. Although, what the DNA actually is could be anything. So, who is this kid? Where does he come from? Well, information is still being revealed, but right now we do know that his father, Jason, is also a convicted felon with an extensive rap sheet. He was charged with lewd or lascivious battery and child abuse in 2003. Apparently, when he was 18, he got in trouble for having sexual activity with a 15-year-old. But this wasn't some Romeo and Juliet scenario. He was also charged with knowingly or willfully abusing a child by intentionally committing an act that could be reasonably expected to result in physical or mental injury. Hmm. Over the years, he's had a few other run-ins with the law, including charges for theft and battery in 2016, after cops say he got into a fight with a couple at a gas station in front of his son. He got six months probation and mandatory anger management for that. According to The Sun, he was last listed as a manager at Fuchi's Full Package LLC, which seems to be a landscaping company in Jacksonville. Oh, okay. I hate to interrupt, but there's also been some new developments when it comes to Aiden's mother, Crystal Smith. According to the arrest report, after her son left with the police... She washed a pair of bloody jeans from his room in a bathroom sink, then put them back in his room. Now, when police searched the house, they found blood in the sink and on the jeans, and she was arrested for tampering with evidence in this case. Back to you, baby. But whatever his home life or dark influences were, 
A beautiful life was tragically and violently ended in the woods on Mother's Day 2021. The whole community rallied together wearing Tristan's favorite color, aqua, to celebrate and honor her. As for Aiden, after a few weeks of debate about whether or not he should be tried as an adult, the final verdict is yes. In the words of the sheriff, I can just tell you that the man's a cold-blooded killer, and I hate to even say man, he's a child, but he committed a man's crime. And with that being said, of course, I think he is being held responsible for the crime committed. He's charged with premeditated first-degree murder. Normally, a charge like that would mean he could get the death penalty, but because of his age, even though he's being tried as an adult, death is not an option. But he is looking at life in prison if he's found guilty. Now, how does something like this happen? How does a kid get like this? Well, we researched some of the warning signs psychologists say to watch out for. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back to recap those red flags right after this. Now, obviously, kids misbehave and act out, and it doesn't mean they're on a path toward death row. But have you ever wondered, even for just a split second, if your child or someone else's kid is an actual psychopath? I for sure have. Manifesting what psychologists call callous and unemotional traits that lead to unthinkable crimes at an early age is very rare. In fact, it's only in the last 25 years that scientists have really started studying what makes these kids tick and how to treat them before they kill. Here are a few red flags to watch out for. A lack of empathy, emotion, or guilt after hurting someone, dishonest charm, grandstanding, lying, manipulation, callousness, impulsiveness, thrill-seeking, and not caring about any consequences for their actions. That's a lot of red flags. And it should be said that most people have a at least a few of these traits, and they don't go on to become the next Ted Bundy. In fact, according to one study quoted in VeryWellFamily.com, of successful business leaders may be psychopaths, which I'd have to disagree with. I mean, I'd say that number is probably higher, but maybe that's just because I've had some awful bosses in the past. But in all seriousness, roughly four out of five kids with these traits go on to lead normal, successful lives. It's that fifth kid that we got to watch out for. Researchers are trying to solve the mystery of why that kid kills or, you know, wants to kill. So then it comes down to the big question, are killers born or are they made? And the answer is both. Experts say it's genetics combined with family dynamics plus life experiences, like was the child abused or from a dysfunctional home? But sometimes it has nothing to do with how they were raised. Some studies say it's faulty wiring. Their brains just don't empathize with fear and sadness. And as far as other warning signs go, well, a well-known study from forensic psychiatrist J.M. McDonald claimed that arson, persistent bedwetting after the age of five, and, of course, animal cruelty, could indicate trouble ahead. Those three traits are known as the McDonald triad. In his 1963 paper, The Threat to Kill, McDonald found that out of 100 aggressive patients with the other signs of psychosis I mentioned earlier, most of them also had a history of setting fires, wetting the bed after five, you know, consistently, and killing animals. But also, it could be complete BS. 
1968, even McDonald himself wondered if he was way off base. But whether or not that triad can accurately predict the making of a murderer certainly indicates that the child needs help of some kind. I mean, I think we can all agree on that. But for now, researchers are still trying to learn more about these killer kids in hopes of being able to treat them before they become a danger to themselves and others. Personally, I'm never going to offer to babysit again. I mean, why take the chance? But that is your recap. Thanks for spending some time with us today. If you like getting twice the crime in half the time, please take a second to hit subscribe and give this podcast a five-star rating and let us know what you think in the comments. It only takes a second, but it means the world to us and it really helps us spread the word about the show. Until next Wednesday, take care.